John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 539.PR0324, certificate number 44141. Good night, moon. Good night, moon. Good night, cow jumping over the moon. Good night, light and the red balloon. Good night, bears. Good night, chairs. Good night, moon. Good night. Good night. Moon. Good night. Moon. Good night. Moon. Good night, bears. Good night, chairs. You're a pretty good dad. I assume you read Thanks. or read bedtime stories. Yes. To your kid. Yes. Is that a part of your winding down routine to this day? Yes. She really likes to be read to. And um and she, you know, increasingly she wants to be uh, she wants to hear more and more sophisticated stories but she's she likes weirdly she likes to have comic books read to her and then garfield <laughs> walks over to the window yeah i read uh i uh, the other night i read a bunch of calvin and hobbs to her and whenever i go over calvin and hobbs with her i realize that um it's just like a pixar movie there are so many references that only mom and dad will get. It's not a children's cartoon at all. It, or, it's a comic strip for for smarty pantses, and so she loves it because it's a comic strip. But, but you know, but you know, we love Peanuts, and you go back and read right. it now, and it's full of Peanuts has surprisingly topical references to, and it's so dark. It's, yeah, it's really a bummer, a heavy, a heavy fifties head trip. But yeah. but the topical references kept up. Like in the 90s, in the late strip, Snoopy dresses as Joe Grunge. Are you aware of this? I, I think I remember Instead it. of Joe Cool. He's, yeah, he's he, wearing glasses. And... The kids somehow are the same age, but 50 years have passed. And they're not interested in um, in uh, what Bill Balden and uh, uh, Ted Williams anymore. Yeah, I'm <laughs> right. I'm always, you know, I'm reading her these comics and I'm, you know, I have to stop like every panel and go... So the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm trying to. You said you want a more sophisticated yeah, I'm, stuff. I'm trying to back back it up with other stuff, but yeah. You guys are alternating the Charter House of Parma with uh, with Garfield at large. What's funny is that I'll read, you know, I'll read a chapter of Harry Potter to her or whatever, and then she'll go. Do you do the voices? Yes. And that's what she likes about it. And that's why I had to stop reading Tintin to her because I have 14 different Tintin voices and it's, a, it's exhausting. I mean, forty minutes of reading Tintin aloud 
Because nothing ever sweet. happens in Tintin. And it's 100% dialogue, so you yeah. don't even get a break to talk in your voice. It's like, what did you say? I said a thing. You said a thing. What was the thing? I'll say it again. Do any of the Tintin characters talk in your voice? Or are they all just original creations? My voice for Tintin is just my normal voice a little bit pitched up. So I'm like, hey, this is my Tintin voice, but it's not... There's no accent. And unfortunately, I made Professor Calculus an Austrian. And so Calculus talks so much. And I am always talking in this, you know, this Professor Calculus. And it just, oh, by the end of the day, I'm like, no more. Bedtime stories come at bedtime when the parent just wants the child gone. I mean, really what you should be wanting is to build a strong bonding relationship and fond memories that will last a lifetime. But also you're like, I can turn on Netflix as soon as this chapter is over. Yeah. So you put on, you, you leave your phone in the child's bed with someone else reading it a bedtime story. I think that's probably pretty common. I loved it. I was always, I was always big time bedtime story dad long after, you know, when the kids even kind of had to be cajoled into it. And what were the stories that you read? Oh man, it, it, it was, it was a little of everything. Uh, Gulliver's Travels, <laughs> not, that, not that much. A little of everything. There, there, it was, a, as the old saying goes, it was a little of everything except Gulliver's Travels. There was a time when I read her the Just So stories, and I just had to avoid all the racism. <laughs> you know, I would just sort of skirt around it because I was read the Just So stories when I was little, and they had a you know I I remembered them very fondly. You just have to kind of take the Kipling out of them. We would do yeah no you can't Kipple. We would do, you know, we would do big chunks. We did all the Tolkien and all the Narnias and all the, I think Mindy might have read Harry Potter to my youngest. They're still, uh, she recently revived it and she has been reading. uh, The Wall Street Journal? The Prince's Bride. Oh, oh, wow. That's meta. With my youngest. Yeah, it really is. It's a bedtime story. But I mean, the book, I don't know if you've read the book. The book does not have the framing story with the grandpa. Oh, but it there's does, no Peter Falk in it? But it does have a similar framing story in which William Golding pretends, sorry, not William Golding, William Goldman pretends that his dad found this old book and proceeded to only read him the interesting parts of it. Oh, I see. So it is kind of a, a meta meta thing. And maybe my wife is only reading the interesting parts of the interesting parts. I don't know. They have a plan to read I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith next, which I could not recommend more highly. I love that book. Oh, I'll write it down. It's mostly for middle-aged British women. But you, why That's not? me. Is that, do you feel like you've got an inner, you've got a, a, a Gertrude inside you somewhere? My daughter's mother would absolutely describe herself as a early middle-aged British As a, as a young and... Uh, a young, exciting, vibrant, fashionable British woman. I wonder if she has read it because it's, um, it's kind of had a... It was out of print for many years, but it's kind of been revived. So uh, bedtime stories are, uh, are actually still a going... Concerned in my house and here too, apparently. Yeah, yeah, we still still do them. And did you ever read Goodnight Moon? When yes, when your daughter was little. Old? Absolutely, it was in the it was in the collection of um, of Goodnight books, Goodnight Gorilla, Goodnight uh, Goodnight Coffee Maker, Goodnight Goodbye Columbus. Uh-huh. <laughs> Definitely read her Goodbye Columbus. Farewell to arms. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, we had uh, so long. Uh, and thanks for all the fish. Pretty much any book that had a rabbit. In it was going to make the cut. Um, That's how you decide between good literature and not? Yeah, Does right. it have a rabbit? Peter Rabbit. And then I read her Watership Down, and that was a wrong move when she right. was five years you old. You can't go straight from Peter Rabbit to Watership yeah, Down. Yeah, stop, stop. 
go back. There's got to be a PG and a PG-13 in between. <laughs> Flowers for Algernon. Uh, we, you and I just had the same experience today, which is we both looked for our copy of Goodnight Moon and found that it had, it had been called at yeah. some point. I went upstairs and asked her, uh, where's your, where's Goodnight Moon? And she was like, that's for babies. Because, so she, she sent it to Goodwill, not me. But it also, kids have heard it a hundred times, probably. Right. Like you, you, you're like, why do I even own this? It's in my psyche. Um, yeah, and when you, when we couldn't find it, uh, I think I said, "Don't worry, I know it." <laughs> <laughs> it's a fairly recent addition to the canon. It was written in 1947, and only sold six thousand copies. It was a, it was, um, it probably sold less in the year it came out than any subsequent year. In fact, I do not remember it from my childhood. Do you? I do, and I'm on the. You know, we're part of the second generation raised in having been written in 1947, you know, boomers, our parents could have, or not yours, but parents of people our age could have grown up being lulled to sleep by Goodnight moon. And we were, my dad was in law our, school in 1947. And now our kids are, well, he could have been lulled to sleep by that or by, uh-huh. or by his contracts textbook, <laughs> I guess. Um, but it was, uh, it was not a hit at first. It was the kind of thing that it kind of snowballed. Like for many years, the New York Public Library, the chief, li- the head librarian there, or at least the head children's librarian, Anne Carol Moore, famously hated it huh. and refused to shelve it. Huh. So, you know, the New York Public Library would not have a copy of this, of now what you would think of as the greatest children's book of its age. So this is uh, this is the Moby Dick of children's literature. Because it's, yeah, because it only it became unappreciated popular, at yeah, the time. Yeah. 60 years after its yes. founding. Except that it's not the Moby Dick because it's only 132 words long. It's hard to think of a more... A less Moby Dick. Minimalistic, repetitive children's book. And maybe that's why, maybe that's some of, you know, it's often spoken of as if it's it's got this um, almost mystical appeal and connection to children that just transcends anything about the words or the pictures. Like there's something incantatory about it, the way it can kind of produce sleep and change mood. I'm surprised that uh, it has 132 words. I wouldn't have guessed it had that many. Oh, that that counts repetitions. Those are not 132 distinct words. Oh, I see. That's the total length of the book if you put it in a word process. I see. And moon is is 40 of those words. Good night, I think, is used as, as one word, and it's half of them. Right. Um, but yeah, it's often it's often uh, it's often discussed how you know just the the, the uh, way it appears to connect with kids on this weird psychological level that an adult can't even understand. And as a result, it's, you know, far from, even though it's far from its success in 1947, today it sold 48 million copies. It's been translated into dozens of languages and uh, spawned, I think, dozens of ironic parodies, goodnight iPad and so forth. Yeah, I've had a, I've, I've had a few of those I've gotten a few of those as gifts. You know, when you're a young dad, people are like, oh, here's your young dad handbook. You're like, yeah. And, you know, Goodnight Moon really appeals to the child, whereas, um, go, you know, go the F to sleep. Yeah. The, the bajillion selling go the F to sleep whenever that was 10 years ago. You mm-hmm. know, that's, that's clearly a parent's joke on other parents. Ha ha ha. That has nothing to do with the experience of childhood or bedtime at all. I have a, I, I have a, uh, a personal relationship with Adam Monsbach, the writer. Oh, how do you the, know? The how author you... of Go the, Go the F to Sleep. How do you know Adam? Uh, I was hosting a series of author interviews at Bumbershoot, and he was one of the authors who came through. He had written a book 
um, at the time called Rage is Back and Rage. Children's book? No, it was, you know, he, <laughs> he, uh, he, you know, was an author and, and was writing adult books. And so we were up on stage together and I had, I had, I don't think I met him before he came out on the stage and he sat down, you know, and he went to Columbia. He's a whole, you know, like a, like a, one of these people that if you read his bio, he seems like a certain kind of author you're about to encounter on stage. And he came out, sat down in the chair and the way he speaks is like, yo, so then, you know, like I was saying, like I, I took this dude and I was like, what? Say what? You know? And, and so he talked for a while in answer to a, my first couple of questions. And I was so befuddled. Are you doing a bit? Well, so I said to him, what are you doing? You, you know, in, in front of a big audience. And he was like, what are you, yo, what are you talking about? And I was like, why are you talking that uh, way? He's keeping it real, John. And then we had this whole conversation about like, yo, that's where I'm from, dog. I'm from the, you know. And I was like, are you though? I mean, didn't you go to Columbia? Or didn't you go to Rutgers? And he's like, yo, yo. But and he is from the mean streets of, of Elizabeth, New Jersey or something? I don't know. I My sense is, I don't, honestly, I don't know. I, I'm surprised that Columbia University didn't beat it out of him. But for whatever reason, and I thought that he would be very offended by this experience of me, like kind of interrogating his, his, he's a Jewish guy, you know, from Columbia. I'm like, cringing a little already and I wasn't there, but he didn't mind. So the next time he was coming through Seattle, he was giving a talk at, uh, at town hall about his subsequent book. And he was like, yo, I want that Roderick dude back. And so he like asked for me and I was, I, I was his, uh, interlocutor at that event too. Let the record show you're doing kind of the hand things you probably did when you were in the uh, white fresh crew. Yeah, I'm doing the beastie boys like, yo, yo. But then he realized, I think that his, uh, his serious adult books did not do, cause he wrote go the F to sleep, like in an afternoon, just sort of sure. like, you know, it'd be funny. That's and, why, it's why when, um, celebrities write books, they're always children's storybooks. Yeah. Because you can you can do it in six hours. But he's subsequently written, seriously, just go to sleep, was his follow-up. And then you have to effing eat. And then seriously, you have to eat. And then uh, uh, F, which is what I'm saying now instead of the, the, the word. What a good dad. F, now there are two of you, which presumably is about having a second child. You got to have a, a gift for the... Second baby shower, if, right. you, if you gave them go to F to sleep the first time. And then his most recent humor book is A Field Guide to the Jewish People, which he co-wrote with Adam uh, or Alan Zwiebel and Dave Barry, <laughs> is, the, the uh, least Jewish person I've ever <laughs> thought of, Dave <laughs> he's Barry. He's from Miami, though. Yeah, I guess he, He's observed them in their habitat. But anyway, I thought he was an extremely charming guy. I don't even mind when that happens to writers. Like, you know what? Your publisher wants to sell another six million books. Yeah, so, you know. Go with God. Yeah, now you really have to effing eat. But you continue know, to go the f to sleep. I'm, su- I'm super happy for him. He's like a he's like a super nice guy. I is wonder it, if he still is like yo yo. Is it like eat your effing dinner? A go yeah. the f to sleep story. Yeah, like, exactly. Uh, Rogue One. I mean, it's the type of thing you could write these books on the bus, right? And I, and uh, but I don't know what when we talk about Goodnight Moon, how much child psychology is behind the book. Uh. <laughs> Did it's the a, author live to see her success? Yes. Okay. Uh, except, well, not really, actually. You know, the the author was successful in her lifetime and lived a fascinating life. We'll get into Margaret Wise Brown. But she also, uh, you know, she also died. The book didn't even get into the New York Public Library until, I think, 1972. You know, a, huh. a librarian had to retire 
for that book to get in there. <laughs> the gatekeeper. Whereas Margaret Wise Brown was a respected children's author, but she died in 1952 oh. and, and, oh. Had, and had no idea that this thing was going to be selling still, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of copies a year in, in the science fiction year of 2020. So she was already a children's book author and a success prior to good good night moon was toward the end good of her night moon career was not her first book uh she had written many other children's books you may have some of them do you remember the runaway bunny of course which is just kind of a similar bedtime litany oh, between right. a, a a mother bunny and a daughter bunny so the the runaway bunny was a huge hit in our family because the the little bunny runs away and the mother bunny has this like spooky Little bunny's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna become a, a a bird, and she's like, then I will become a cloud, and I will be the wind. Yeah, and I will, I will lift your wings or whatever. And it's just like, okay, mother bunny's not not letting go. It really gets the uh, the fierce mother child connection. But I it guess. was that we read that we read that book uh, even more than Good Night Moon. I don't think the Good Night book really existed when Good Night Moon was written. You know, today that's a genre of the of the children's bookshelf. And Margaret Wise Brown, I think, essentially created it. But when you look at Goodnight Moon again, it is deeply weird. For readers who have somehow missed out, it's a it's a series of pictures of a large and fairly ornate children's bedroom with a young bunny in bed at, at stage, or, you know, audience right, stage left, saying goodnight to the objects in the room one at a time. So it's a very simple idea. You know, a kid in bed saying, good night shelf, good night lamp, mm-hmm. writes itself. Except the book is much interesting and weirder than that. Um, for one thing, in the Clement Hurd illustrations, the room is not what you'd expect a children's bedroom to look like at all. It's in vivid gem tones, bright green walls, bright red flooring. Um, it's an the, exciting, dynamic place. It is. There's a roaring fire. It's kind of, it looks a little old-fashioned. The pictures all have very uh, ornate frames. There's a, a crazy old-fashioned clock and set of ornamental vases or something in, in light blue on the mantelpiece. So it's a very elaborately decorated kids' room, but it then also has touches like a tiger skin rug next to the bed. I always felt like the child was going to sleep in the living room. Yeah, you almost feel like you're seeing the whole house because it's so big. But in fact, all the, it's all bedroom stuff. Um, it's a bookshelf and a dollhouse and so forth. Um, outside the windows is nothing, a starry void. Mm-hmm. With a, Just like outside my windows. With a moon usually so low in the window pane that the house might as well be an island in space. Are there sandworms? <laughs> right. Like they're, they might be in the, it's not doomed, but maybe it's the Beetlejuice uh, yeah, void right. outside don't, the house. Don't go out the door. <laughs> the room has a lot of kind of weird Dutch angles to it. Like um, it does seem like it's influenced by some of the modernists at the time uh, in the palette and the, the way that the walls meet at weird angles, it might be a Cezanne room or something. The zebra skin rug, very popular mid-century modern element. <laughs> it's clearly modernist. And then it has kind of postmodern touch. There's a lot of things you wouldn't expect in a room. Like there's a there's a kind of a maternal figure sitting knitting in the rocking chair, a comforting figure, presumably, while the while the child nods off. Mm-hmm. But the book never calls her a, a mother at all. The book just says it's an old lady saying hush. As if perhaps the child doesn't know 
why there's an old lady in the rocking chair, which is a little David Lynchian almost. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. There are three paintings on the wall, but each is weirder than the last. There's a, one is of a cow jumping over the moon. The child says goodbye. That's kind of another weird touch of the book kind of rhymes, but also moon rhymes with moon several times. Sure. Goodbye to the cow jumping over the moon. Is there a bowler hat on an apple? Um, no, no, but there are surrealist touches like that. Like one postmodern touch is the runaway bunny. Her previous big hit is on the bookshelf. Oh, in the room. This bunny owns her previous book, the runaway bunny. Well done. The other painting is of, uh, the three little bears sitting on three chairs. A lot of the items in the room seem to be chosen to facilitate rhyming. Uh huh. Like there for, for unaccountable reason, there's a drying rack with two socks and two mittens on it. That thing we all have in our bedroom. Sure. A drying rack with a, two socks and two mittens. If, the, if I, and there are two kittens. Yes. The mittens are there to rhyme with the kittens playing on the floor. The socks presumably rhyme with the clocks. Uh, there's a alarm clock on her nightstand and the weird blue clock on the mantelpiece. If I remember correctly, the perspective is crazy. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, to the drawings, right? It's just like there is no... Um, there is no three point perspective. It's just like, it's weird. all kind of flattened out yeah. a little bit in the way, like it's, there's kind of a cubist yeah, right. thing going on with the room. The bed is against the wall, but, but then it come, but it, because it, the yes. wall is exploded outward, the bed is, it almost looks like a sitcom room, like where it's, everything's <laughs> got to be kind of trapezoidally shaped. So the actors can cheat toward the studio right, audience. Right. The weirdest picture is the one, uh, at the left side of the frame above the dollhouse. It's a black and white picture. Uh, it's a painting of a little bunny fishing. But if you look closely, you'll realize that the bunny is fishing with a carrot on its line. And the 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 prey it's trying to attract is a little a little bunny fish swimming in the stream. A bunny fish. A bunny fisherman is trying to eat a smaller aquatic bunny. A bunny fish, bunny fish swimming in the stream. Uh, so there's maybe cannibalism going on there? Oh, okay. I don't remember this. I didn't I guess I didn't look as closely Maybe I, I wasn't I, paying attention. I am doing a very close reading of the... But even even to the casual observer, there's a red balloon floating above the bed. And, uh, you'd, at first, you'd think, of course, that's the kind of cute thing a children, a nursery would have. Are there noiny noinzig uh, <laughs> there, there, is, there is only ein uh, <laughs> Luftballoon. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a perfect shiny red globe hovering right over the bed in a way that seems a little unearthly uh-huh um like not necessarily menacing but there is something to the adult eye that is very odd is it a- about the room is it on the ceiling or it, uh, is the ceiling not visible and it's just sort of i think it's stuck to the top of the frame which uh-huh. we assume is some kind of proscenium arch through which we see the scene all right yeah you don't see the ceiling it, it does kind of look like scenery and uh, there's a bowl of mush that we say goodnight to, but why is why is a bowl of uneaten mush sitting on the nightstand at bedtime? Well, I can answer that question because, like my daughter, this bunny takes food into her room, and then her then right. her her bed is full of old if, banana. If peels. this was my kid's room, it would be full of Spindrift cans and sugar ants. <laughs> uh, some of this stuff is in the some of this weirdness is actually in the text as the story goes on. If you'll remember. Um, it gets a little more abstract. We stop saying goodnight to socks and clocks and we start saying goodnight to the air. Right. We start saying goodnight to noises. Goodnight noise. We say goodnight to nobody. There's a blank page where we say goodnight to nobody. So there's a lot of... Herman Goering. 
You say, yeah, they say goodnight to, to prominent <laughs> Third Reich figures, which is odd. No, that was... Not true. There were some things removed from the book. For example, the cow jumping over the moon had an udder in the original illustration, which later got bodlerized. Is that because of the New York public librarian that she was like, you have to paint over that udder? I think that was the publisher. She was like, yo, yo, you got to paint over the udder. Adam, what's his Dog. name? No, she was like, even though this cow correctly has no udder, I still refuse to shelf this book. Mm-hmm. Um, but for all these oddnesses, children don't experience it that way. It really has this hypnotic quality that really shows that it intuitively understands, as we talked about when we discussed Mr. Rogers, most children's entertainment is not written for children. It's full of cheeky nods to the adults who are going to purchase it. Whereas this book connects to the preschool brain on a very deep level. The room gets dim, but never dark. Um, there's I'm, a little lamp that's always on. Yeah, there's it, the room is still comforting. The fire, the two lamps, the bright colors, even at a time of day that is scary for kids. And I've read some kind of modern psychological theorizing on why, uh, what, almost... Over almost 75 years later, next year it'll turn 75. It does feel like a quiet, safe, even the two little kittens don't feel disruptive. They're just like, it's that thing. Did, what were the sounds in your house as a kid that after you went to bed, you could still hear the parents doing stuff, moving around? Love to hear, love to hear the Apple II Plus keyboard clicking because my dad was still up. <laughs> Apple II Plus. Uh, I like to hear the the washing machine. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the nightly news out there kind of, I had bedtime issues as a kid, you know, and I really liked, but I liked the idea that, that yeah, comforting life was continuing in the house, that it wasn't about to become, uh, a dark void, an absence, you know, where I could wake up and scary things would happen. The Watergate hearings were a big part of what (laughs) comforted me. I thought you were going to say the water heater, but also the Watergate (laughs) hearings. The Watergate hearings, just hearing, you know, Ellsberg If I hear Sam Rayburn today, uh, the, yeah, there is something very cozy about the room. And the perspective, but the I weird perspective. Think, do you think that's because would... we've just been seeing it for 75 years? Today, this conveys coziness to us, but in 1947, it clearly would have been a, an odd modernist space. No, I think, I think you know, when a kid understands, a kid doesn't understand perspective. And so looking into a room, you would be able to see- See every surface. Yeah, yeah. the tops of all the tables, yeah. even though, you, you know, why, why are you looking down from some- some corner. I mean, it's, it just, I think it makes sense. And the colors are, although they're bright, they're also dark. It's a dark room or it's a night room. The colors are all rich and deep. And there's a lot of repetition of them. The the room does not have every color. It has a lot of that gem green, this kind of warm, uh, reddish brown, this chestnut hue, Christmas colors, and some yellow and some yellow highlights. Yeah. So it's no, um, it feels inviting. And, and the windows of the the lights are on in the dollhouse. The whole thing seems to be conveying it seems to be very aware of my childhood fear, which is that life in the house was going to stop and I was going to wake up to a cold, empty, silent house with no one to comfort me if I had a nightmare. Tell me more, Ken. <laughs> you want to should we work through this? Yeah, I feel like at least I've got you talking. I think this happens a lot to I think we for because we don't remember that part of our childhood well, we kind of think of, we remember stuff later in childhood. You know, we remember the the ironic takes on that stuff. We remember Calvin and Hobbes and the monster under the bed. 
Right. And we forget that there was a time when we were a few years younger when we were really scared at bedtime. The monster was real. It was just a it, bedtime. So I've read some kind of uh, modern psychologists trying to break down why Goodnight Moon works. And the, their theory generally is that bedtime is scary for kids in a way that adults don't understand and can't communicate with. Because there's no evidence that you will wake up. <laughs> right. You're giving up complete control. Yeah. And the bunny in this book does not give up control. The bunny ex- exerts order over bedtime by cataloging the comforting objects surrounding her, saying goodnight to each of them in turn. There's a sense that this is a pattern for the bunny. And as if you read the book to your kids every night, it's a pattern in your house as well. Um, the room gets dim but doesn't dark. There's still all this color and signs of life. Uh, you know, it's a way for the child to feel reassured at bedtime instead of alone and at sea because also the kittens and the fire and the curtains are also going to sleep the the presumption is in saying goodnight to them that they're they're both kind of vigilant and also yeah they're still there they don't disappear when they're said goodnight to but i guess they're with you yeah yeah and this book was never read we owned it but this book was never read to me that much as a kid i think but it's still like the illustrations are like so deep in my dna that I feel like this is now a comforting room in our culture. And in fact, it's often recreated full size for children's museums. Just in April, uh, an art collective on the Lower East Side built built the Goodnight Room, Goodnight Room, sorry, the Goodnight good Moon, moon Room, room mm-hmm. at full size, re- complete with, you know, replicas of, you know, fun kind of artistic takeoffs of the fire and the kittens and so forth and then david byrne was in there yes. djing and uh, having a dance party <laughs> there should be a club that looks like the good night yeah or uh, rooms from all the great children's books this club has everything bears <laughs> on chairs kittens <laughs> with mittens um did you read it to yourself is that it wasn't read to you but maybe you had it and looked at it as a kid maybe you always look at the books in your room so many times yeah right because you only have a certain number the library is a, a wealth but your room maybe has 25 books and you know every picture by heart, the very hungry caterpillar, what he's going to do next. Right. And Nobody ever read Richard Scary to me, but I know every single Especially note. Especially those, because yeah. you can just stare at the page for hours and you can, to yeah. this day, I, you were saying you didn't know what kind of car to get recently. Did, were you, did you not think of getting a car that's shaped like a toothbrush or an apple? <laughs> right. Get a little lowly worm car. A banana mobile. <laughs> what were you thinking? <laughs> There's also something very prosaic about the book. It takes place in a normal place, a child's bedroom with some weird modernist touches mm-hmm. but it takes place in a in a, ch- a familiar comforting place and that was kind of the innovation of the author margaret wise brown because most uh, children's books up to that point took place on world war one battlefields well if you think about what children read in the 30s and 40s there was a lot of distant lands and knights in shining armor and oh, sure. times of yore back then you know children got one book and it was ivanhoe they just had to read Ivanhoe over and over, <laughs> and they're like, "You'll like this." I think it has. I think it has a, a jousts at one point. Right, Swiss Family Robinson. Uh, you've got uh, the pirates, often scary right. pirates. It's long ago times and exotic places. Some of them fantastic, you know, fairy kingdoms, fairy tales, and stuff. You've got rhinoceroses before they have plates. You've got tiger or leopards before they have spots. And this was a very specific academic theory that Margaret Wise Brown called. Well, she didn't come up with it, but she ascribed to the here and now theory of of children, which is that they didn't need and, in fact, could not appreciate all that stuff. Like she realized, wait, that's adult trappings. That's what get adult. That's what gets adults to buy a book is if right. it has 
if it has Robin Hood and fair ladies in it. It's the Baba Ram Das theory of early childhood development. Which is? Be here now. <laughs> That's right. Just the child should be surrounded by the things that remind it of, of his or her own life. Yeah. The, the money quote here, I think this is Margaret Wise Brown, although it could be her mentor. It is only the blind eye of the adult that finds the familiar uninteresting. The blind eye of the adult. Like we've seen children's bedrooms so many times that we think this is boring. What's the second act? Whereas a kid is like, no, this is perfect. And I, I actually believe that. Like it really kind of falls in line with my theory of, you know, the moment in the Miyazaki movie where the kid just stops and looks at tadpoles for eight seconds or whatever. Like that's the moment that speaks to the child, the kind of the the familiar thing. Well, yeah, well, we watched Kiki's Delivery Service, but when my daughter was a little bit older and we were struck by how little happens what's going on in this movie it's who just, is the villain of kiki's delivery service yeah, oh just, wait she's just delivering things and sometimes it goes well yeah. sometimes there's some challenges yeah but she gets it done sometimes the the obstacle in her way is herself and she needs the woods lady to to help her understand that yeah so the so that's uh, that's an intentional part of this book and her other books like runaway bunny that they take place in in familiar settings that the child will still be fascinated by, because to a kid, everything is new. Right. In Runaway Bunny, the kid is not trying to run away to uh, Tanganyika. The kid is just running away to things that it can think of. And then it's, it all seems to be happening in a, in, a, in a childhood home, you know? When, you, when your kids were little, did you have very clear daily patterns in your house? Yeah. I think kids thrive on that kind of... Uh, you know, and I, th- that's my childhood, the bologna sandwich at noon, Sesame yeah. Street at four. The, the pediatrician always said to us from the time that the baby was born, you know, kids really want patterns. They want stability. They want it to be the same thing every day. And I was like, I'm a rock musician. I'm here sometimes and I'm not others. None of us wake. I mean, I, none of us wake up at the same time or go to sleep at the same time. We eat at random times. Is this going to affect our child? There Absol- is no he pattern. Was like absolutely, she, the, the, <laughs> oh, pedi- the pediatrician was like, "Well, that's not ideal." I was like, "Well, what are we supposed to do?" Like, I've never had a meal at the same time from day to day ever, and uh, and I Start. don't, I don't know how we're going to do it. I mean, you know, I'm leaving tomorrow, and and her mother also travels for work, and so we've always been conscious of the fact that our kid has not had the regularity that apparently according to everybody, a child really needs. But some of that has accreted in your household. Over time. Yeah. But like when she was little, it I feel was like, like she, but she has, I think she, now she has a very stable routine, welcoming yeah. kind of, Yeah, it's not a, it's not an adventurous, you're not the, the weird dad in the indie movie raising the kid on a RV at the beach or whatever. No, but you know, when she was three and four, it was like, tonight you're staying at Nana's. Daddy's going to, you know, he, daddy's going to FaceTime you from, from, uh, you know, Antwerp tomorrow. So I feel bad. Anyway, she's going to have stuff to say to her college roommate about what a bad childhood she had. No, I don't think so. The, uh, I, I just realized that same, that same kind of epiphany that the children want to read, children want art about the stuff that's familiar to them and not about the, the dragons and the dwarves is also the epiphany of Pacific Northwest legend Beverly Cleary. Right. I think that's the story she tells. She always had these books about, you know, race car drivers and desert islands. And she was like, kids don't even grok any of that. Like, where's the book about 
how to save up for a new bike or getting a dog or when your friend's annoying sister won't leave you alone, you know? And that's, that was kind of the origin of all the Beezus and Henry and Ramona books is like, today we think of that as the archetypal kids book, you know, Dick and Jane type adventures on a suburban street, a medium sized city street, uh, I guess, Northeast Portland as it happens. But like, that was actually revolutionary. Like Beverly Cleary kind of had to invent that. Oh, interesting. Yeah, you're right. Of course you think of, I mean, all, all, you think all children's books take place on those leafy streets? Yeah, it's just like somebody's dumb little brother is always getting, you know, up into the treehouse. And... Oh, she had to invent that because wow. kids were just reading Ivanhoe. Right. And when you got done with Ivanhoe, maybe you got Silas Martin. <laughs> Beowulf. <laughs> <laughs> Margaret Wise Brown was a little older. Let's see, Beverly Cleary just died at 103. So oh. she was born in the... T- 1916. In the, wow, 1916. Can you imagine all, uh, all the places she'd seen? All, all the things she'd uh, prob- done? Probably no no places, because you, could, she you, went you from, couldn't go anywhere at that age. I right, mean, she lived in Portland her, her whole life. Uh, Margaret Wise Brown, I guess mostly the same generation, then born in 1910, although on the other coast, kind of a fairly wealthy Long Island family, the kind that could send her to some nice girls' school in Virginia. And uh, after, upon graduation, she was she loved the modernists. She loved Proust and Virginia Woolf and... Gertrude Stein, and uh, and when she graduated, she returned to New York and found this kind of progressive school with modern views of childhood, and particularly like um, you know here's how here's what immigrant kids need. This is you know in the this would be what the kind of the 30s New York, so burgeoning immigrant population, and and um, you know lots of kind of progressive do-gooders trading ideas on what's the right. What are the right educational theories? And her mentor, this woman named Lucy Sprague Mitchell, really believed in this here and now stuff, like in every respect, like tear down the Lower East Side and build a and build the the, the Stuyvesant town. Yeah, and the school should and the school should be full of things that are familiar to oh, the kids. Oh, I see. So this, not that not tear down the Lower East Side. No, actually, like you know, the kids should like learn in their milieu. The story should be about people like them. You know, instead of what theory about the water cycle, you know, let them actually hold an eroded limestone rock or, you know, show them things. And so there's a lot of kind of hands-on education and proto Montessori. Yeah, exactly. It's, it seems kind of Montessori esque and, uh, Margaret Wise Brown taught there and, uh, got off to a really rocky start. Her classroom management was terrible. She was always getting her, like a pretty definitive biographer of her came out not too long ago and it's got all her teacher, evaluations and i guess the kids were always running wild and the glue pots were spilling everywhere she was drunk all the time (laughs) she was not drunk all the time um but she didn't like children particularly like many great children's artists famously uh what maurice sendak and roald Dahl, all these people who didn't edward gorey (laughs) yeah they didn't care for kids much and edward gorey at least was honest and and killed them all but she did seem to understand kids. I should say that Montessori predates this. Maria Montessori does. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know how, pro- I don't know how well known the schools would have been in America though at the time. Uh, oh, right. Italian. I have no idea when the first U.S. Montessori school probably came with Italian immigration. I don't know. Hmm. Like pizza. <laughs> the Yeah, probably the same time. Yeah. If you could only choose one, what would you keep? Let's, hey, say, uh, let's say the Italians can only give us one gift. Got a pizza pie over here and a, and a school, a Montessori a hands school. Hands on a school. So she didn't do great at Bank Street as a teacher, but the school also had a writer's lab. 
And she started selling children's stories with this kind of here and now vibe. And when her first story sold, it was a huge party. She stopped a donkey cart in the street and bought every flower on the, or she cast the check, stopped a cart in the street, bought every flower and went all over the city giving her friends flowers. And when you read about her kind of life, she really is a true New York bohemian of the 30s. That's kind of the MC Hammer story, right? He, uh... He, he did it a few too many times. Yeah, I think. gave 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 away every bought bought too many flowers. If you limit it to one donkey cart or horse cart where the horse is wearing a hat with holes for ears, I think it's okay. So she didn't like kids, but she was good at writing children's books. It's kind of a uh, if you can't teach, do maybe. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's kind of a. I don't know. Do you think like any of these guys, I mean, Fred Rogers seemed to really love children, Yeah. but a lot of these people who really understand kids, it's from their own memories of their own childhood, which may include some dark memories, right? It's so commonplace to not like kids. I've always liked kids, so I I never understood it, but, but watching people interact with kids, you go, oh, you don't like kids at all, or you don't want anything to do with them. It's not that you don't like them, it's that they're terrifying, they're Gross yeah, and, and it's weird. and it's you're 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 bringing back memories from your own childhood where all your experiences with kids have been alienated. Oh, right. And I don't and I don't have that, so I try not to think less. of It's really easy to think less of people today who who dislike kids because I really do think that's not uh, anything to brag about and something that should be worked to overcome. But I have sympathy for it because yeah. it really is you know you're you see other kids and you think about the kids that pushed you off the slide. Right. Those are the girls I like to date. The girls that pushed you off the slide? Well, yes, but also the, the ones now that are like, I don't want kids. Uh, I just want a girl to push me off my sex swing. No. No. The, I want to uh, stay on that sex swing. So reading about her life in the 30s is is really delightful because it really seems like a just a WPA-era wonderland. Um, she meets Clement Hurd, who later... Clement Hurd, who illustrated many of her books, including Goodnight Room, had just come back from Paris where he was studying from... Fernand Leger and Margaret Wise Brown, who they called Goldie and Brownie or Tim, because her she had the hair of that looked like Timothy Hay. These are her cute. Great. These are Calvin and Hobbes references. Her, her cute non-binary nicknames. Uh, she and all her friends have decided they're going to rent a train car and go to Hartford to see the new Gertrude Stein Virgil Thompson opera performed by an all-black cast. Well, you don't see this in Goodnight Moon, but you're saying that the illustration is is uh, a little Dada because it's actually coming from that culture. This guy had studied with a great French modernist painter. And wow. in fact, when when uh, when Brown finished the manuscript, he, he, she sent uh, she sent her like a copy of a Goya painting. You know, uh, it's um, it's usually called Boy in Red. Manuel Osorio Manrique de Zuniga of a of a little kid in a bright red outfit. It's the same color as the as the carpet as the flooring in Goodnight Room, but with a bunch of animals sitting around and, you know, this is kind of the, the fine art vibe she wanted, but yeah, they all loved modern literature, modern art. I'm so, I, I wish that she'd sent him La Maja. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that would have been a much better book. That's a different kind of good night story. Uh, there's no market for Tijuana Bibles of, of classic children's books because you would get arrested. Yeah. So these are the kind of bohemian circles she's running in, you know, out with friends laughing all night, like, like right. Dorothy Parker, Edna St. Vincent uh, Algonquin Malay. Hotel, I was going to say. Yeah. And uh, in fact, when she leaves Bank Street and, and joins up with a new publishing house as kind of an in-house children's book writer and editor, she actually gets Gertrude Stein to write a children's book for her. Gertrude Stein and her illustrator, Clement Hurd, 
collaborate on Gertrude Stein's only children's book, The oh, World cool. is Round, uh, which I guess is not very good. But she was a real tough cookie in that job. Um, an editor once gave her a pair of dueling pistols as a joke because of what a what a, a hard bargain she would drive as a writer. Uh, that's a good joke, but also an incredible gift. Yeah. What can a, you, what you, a, for every occasion. Can you right? imagine like, oh, hey, I got you something. You open a box, it's a pair of dueling it's, it's pistols. It's a pair of dueling pistols. Wow. But it does kind of convey, I don't think you want to give that for like an anniversary gift. Mm, yeah, right. I guess not. But she continued to write her books at this time. Runaway Bunny came to her on the ski slopes and she wrote the whole thing on the back of a ski receipt. <laughs> like all, all the, uh, well, then I will turn into a, the sun and I will make the rain dry up. All, you know, all that stuff on the back of a ski receipt. That's awesome. Um, her life, you know, it's really kind of a glamorous life. She had a series of relationships with dashing young men. And then in 1940, she met socialite Blanche Elricks of a wealthy Manhattan family. Who, it's so nice to be the member of a wealthy Manhattan family at this time. There's so many of them in this story. Uh, Elrix, to, pr- to protect her family's reputation, went by Michael Strange when she wrote her erotic feminist poetry. But She, she, al- she, por- she uh, masqueraded as a male writer of erotic feminist poetry? Yes. Okay. But she also had married John Barrymore. Okay. In the 20s. <laughs> All right. Uh, you know, the greatest actor of his time. Pretty she great. married into the Barrymore family. She's not Drew Barrymore's great-grandma. That would be his third wife, Dolores. Great, um, gr- great step-grandmother. Step-great-grandmother. That's right. Step-great-grandmother. But uh, Margaret Wise Brown and Michael Strange fell for each other in a big way and had this tumultuous 10-year relationship where they... Oh. They bought neighboring apartments on the Upper East Side. The best way to go. And lived uh, as a romantic, you know, lived as romantic partners for most of the 40s. Oh, that's wonderful. But with, you know, many a dish-breaking, door-slamming fight and breakup, in which case Margaret Wise Brown would retreat to her beloved country house in Maine, which she called the Only House. And uh, one time after a fight, she went up to the Only House she sounds and like John Hodgman. She does. She's, you know, except he was doing it, this, you know, the for the E.B. White reason. And right. Margaret Weiss Brown probably knew E.B. White. Uh, and so she settled into this empty house in the main countryside. And she remembered this thing she used to do as a kid, which was to kind of lull herself to sleep by naming all the objects in the room. So she started to do that in her main country house. And, you know, just saying goodnight to the, dr- the knob on the drawer. And it started to become an idea in her head later in the decade when she was back together with uh, Blanche Elricks, a.k.a. Michael Strange. Uh, she had a dream one night where she remembered that saying goodnight, Lenny, but it was set in a in a, a kind of a red and green room in her neighbor downstairs neighbor's apartment. And so, and so suddenly it like coalesced into the book, which not not unlike Go the F to Sleep, I'm sure she wrote in an afternoon. And she was already uh, versed in in uh, like anthropomorphized rabbits, she'd already written the Runaway Bunny. I think in the an early version of the book, the characters are human, uh-huh. and it was Clement Hurd who decided he did not want to r- draw a human mom knitting and a human baby sleeping, and painted them as rabbits in a callback to the previous book. And Margaret Wise Brown loved it. Um, unfortunately, just two months after the book came out. Uh, Michael Strange collapsed um, from what they thought was fatigue, and it turned out to be leukemia. And uh, she died shortly 
thereafter, mm-hmm. ending this great and tumultuous relationship for Margaret Wise Brown. But she rebounded. Just a few years later, she was suddenly engaged to James Stillman Rockefeller Jr. Oh, wow. Speaking of being a member of a wealthy Manhattan family. This story just rolls and rolls. He is a Rockefeller. His dad had run what became Citibank. I think at the time it was the National Citibank of New York. His dad had run that for decades. So Pebble Rockefeller was doing very well for himself. Um, he, he had actually been on the cover of Time magazine, I think. Oh, this is probably the dad. I think the dad was an Olympic athlete who had actually been on the the rowing crew with Benjamin Spock that oh. won an Olympic gold medal in the 1920s oh. and was married to a woman who had previously been married to Tor Heyerdahl <laughs> of omnibus fame. <laughs> so this is her new beau, is uh, Pebble Rockefeller. And this is now the new love of her life and um, everything's going great. And... She heads to Nice, France for work and has to get surgery there on an ovarian cyst Uh Uh, and is recovering in the hospital and is recovering well and uh, wants to show off to a nurse how well she is doing. So she like kicks her legs in the air to kick her blankets off and in doing so dislodges a blood clot in her leg and is dead of a pulmonary embolism within the hour. Oh, no. So Margaret Wise Brown passed away in, uh, well, I think, 1952. At, at what age? She would have been, uh, let's see, born in 1910. She would have been in her mid-40s. Wow. So not a long life. And as you say, uh, you know, you asked if she had lived to see the book become a success. She was a successful kids writer, but Goodnight Moon was not selling a million copies a year like it would in the 70s and 80s and 90s. So in a, in a kind of a funny postscript, she left the rights of the of that particular book in her will to uh, the son of a friend of hers, a woman named McCormick, who, you know, was kind of, uh, seemed like she needed a leg up. Maybe a single mom needed a leg up. She left it all to this kid. Unfortunately, the kid, by the time she died, the kid was already a teen and already kind of a delinquent. And he inherits the rights to this book uh, at a time when he's already enmeshed in drugs and crime and 1950s drugs and crime he's yeah. like a he's, he's like a, he's a rebel without a cause yeah wow a brando so from the 50s into the 60s and the 70s a trust is re- you know releasing to him you know the book is starting to make more and more money he's getting increasing allowance of hundreds of dollars a week which immediately goes into you know his arm or his awful friends or whatever um, and so he lives a dissolute lifestyle. The Wall Street Journal profiled him in like in the 2000s at some point, Whoa. where Al- Albert Edward Clark was still alive, pushing 60, and still like living his smoking di- opium, dissolute life, traveling around the country, abandoning kids and families and women right and left. But now a, a multimillionaire. You'd think. Oh. Um, but he just manages to, you know, he gets the check twice a year and it's it's gone weeks later. He never signed it away. Uh, he's just, he just does that much blow. He never made a bad legal decision. He just, uh, yeah, apparently just makes a series of, of bad decisions. Wow. And, you know, and the, the trustee, you know, probably died in the 70s, giving him sudden access to hundreds of thousands of dollars, which, again, was gone by the end of the year. 
And he seems like he's not all there. It's kind of a, I kind of feel bad that they even are profiling this guy who can't even remember the name of the book and just jokes about that. It's, you know, Oh, just, you know, just alcohol syndrome or early Alzheimer's or something. Oh boy. And now believes that Margaret Wise Brown was actually his mother and that nobody's, nobody's talking about this. And, and and when do the rights become public domain? Well, the Sonny Bono Copyright Act extends extended at twenty years, so he can count on he can count on uh, proceeds from Goodnight Moon coming well into the two thousand forties. Oh boy! At which time he would be in his late nineties, and probably I, I don't even know if actually I think he's still alive. I didn't find a death notice for him. So every time you give a copy of Goodnight Moon away at a baby shower or something, um. A hundred percent of the proceeds are going to this kind of lost child of the mid twentieth century. The I guess the the out the outgrowth of of uh, Margaret Wise Brown's Bohemian scene. Who do you think is going to inherit the rights when he he doesn't? Have, oh, he's got. You're saying he's got multiple kids. Uh, that- he does. He's been he's been uh, prosecuted for kidnapping them, like carrying them out of the room under his arm like a football. So this is going to this is potentially going to finally right the wrong of all of his uh, all of his bad parenting. You think all you, of these? Well, so what, what if, rights if kid, the wrong more than money? If a kid has been raised wrong, <laughs> all you need to do is throw a large check at them on a regular basis, based on the on, on the most, most good natured children's book of all time. Maybe they'll you know maybe they'll be curious and they'll look at the book, and yeah. they will be soothed by its gem tones and, and reassuring repetitive imagery. Yeah, the book written by their apparent grandmother. Who knows? And that concludes Goodnight Moon, entry 539.PR0324, certificate number 44141 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, and the even more unlikely event that I or one of you inherit the remaining copyright to the enormous proceeds of Goodnight Moon. How come my uh, how come my mom didn't befriend some struggling writer who bequeathed her the rights to a book that later became a bestseller? Well, your mom was happily married. It was my mom that would be more likely. My my poor divorced mother who was working eighty hours a week. That's right. Where's my? She needed a benefactor. Benef- well, yeah, we didn't live on the Lower East Side or Upper East Side or wherever they lived, up, upstate Maine. There could have been some Seattle or Alaska millionaire who, or you know, uh, artist who. The guy that wrote the Weedle on the Needle? Yeah, yeah. the Weedle, Weedle on the Needle guy, uh, Jim Weedle. Anyway, uh, you can find Ken on the internet at Ken Jennings. You can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash John Roderick. You can write us emails at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You can uh, find other Futurelings on Facebook and uh, Instagram and uh, Reddit and the other places, Snapchat, uh, wherever Futurelings are mentioned. You can uh, mail us at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Got any mail over there? Uh, yeah, this one's pretty good. Our friend uh, David Chelsea, the uh, yep. Portland cartoonist. The, I mean, even the envelope. I don't. I don't it's Melly Vanilli. It's a beautiful watercolor oh, of so Melly Vanilli. I don't even want to open this because I'm afraid... 
Yeah, don't mess do it you, up. Do you have like a letter opener? Like, oh, there's so many knives you around have a here. Of them. Yeah, I don't have a I don't have a knife right here, and that is an embarrassment to me. What if you attack me? Yeah, I thought you were always ready for anything. What if civilization collapses right now? Well, here you can use the uh, pin from this Hilbert Hotel button. And the back is very adhered. I feel like he made his own envelope here, just be, you know, in order to use oh, like what? a better, uh, right, better uh, painting tooth of surface. paper. Yeah, David said since we liked the reprinted envelopes I sent last time. Oh yeah, he, last time he included some you know past Christmas card envelopes or something. Here are some more. I used to bring them to comic conventions back in the pre-COVID days and sell them for a dollar a piece. You would also swap them for other merch from other artists at the cons as a way of getting stuff without spending money. Although given the price of printer ink, I'm not sure I actually came out ahead. Boy, isn't that the way. <laughs> These are cool old envelopes he has sent us with copies of past artwork, watercolors of friends, family, and Jodie Foster, oh, possibly. Well done. Uh, some kind of 60s-era ventriloquist, a kind of a shrunken Bill Plimpton-looking distorted man, a scary jack-in-the-box clown, a bunch of doodled heads. These are just each each a beautiful work of art that I think was an original when he first sent it, and he's kept copies for... Look at well, those. Those these are, are things that you, uh, listeners, don't have to just hear us describe. You can actually see them uh, if you subscribe to our Patreon, where there are uh, many great photographs of our uh, uh, mail and other ephemera from the production of the show. And we you, will put and these you could, up if there. And if you would like to own something similar, I bet you could go to dchelsea.com and see what's available. And if you'd like to own omnibus show notes and other uh, chick tracks and other weird things that we have lying around, signed just, by us, just uh, subscribe at the uh, at the giant sentient uh, nostril level or whatever it is. You can find it on Patreon.com/slash Omnibus Project. You could also go to OmnibusProject.com/slash Store if you wanted to own uh, omnibus-related shirts, hats, mugs, and similar. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. Good night, John. Good night, Ken. Good night, John. Good night, Ken. Good night, laptop. Good night, ballpoint pen. Good night, Diet Dr. Pepper in a can. Good night, uh, Aya Nazir ingot that was sent to us by a man. We hope and pray that the catastrophe of fear may never come and we can all sleep soundly. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omni.